Yerp. My good people, greetings. What is happening? What is going on? How are we feeling? Hope we had a great weekend and that your day is off to a tremendous start as we'll navigate through the sports universe here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. I am your host, J Reels. For those listening for the very first time, I welcome you guys aboard and thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content. And for those who have been banging with me on this journey from episode 1 to now 74, I welcome you guys back here on a Monday, June the 10th in the year of our Lord 2019. As this is what we'll have on tap, Mets and Yankees, Subway Series, Round 1 up in the Bronx, weather permitting as they'll battle on for their first of two series this year. We'll take a look back at the week that was for both the Amazons and the Bombers leading up to this series tonight. We'll also get into Rafael Nadal's 12th, that's right, 1-2. Unbelievable how he's been just dominant on the clay surface there at Roland Garros, so we'll talk a little tennis later on in the podcast. Also get into a Game 7, that's right, for all the marbles, for Lord Stanley Cup up in Boston on Wednesday night. We'll recap the last couple of games, including last night's 5-1 victory where the Bruins staved off elimination for a winner-take-all coming up in Beantown on Wednesday night. We'll also get into the Jets' new GM, Joe Douglas, who has now been hired, chances are, more than likely, by Adam Gase, his buddy from his days in Chicago for the one year in Chicago back in 2015, and what that means for the owner, Christopher Johnson, moving forward. But we'll start off this podcast with a championship flair, considering that last night we had the Bruins push it to a Game 7, and tonight it's all about what's going to happen in Toronto, where for the first time in 26 years, we could crown a champion north of the border in one of the four major sports. And when you think about Canada, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is hockey. And they haven't sniffed the title, forget about the Maple Leafs, but Canada hasn't sniffed the title since 1993 when the Canadians won as they beat the LA Kings back then, for those who remember. And also the Toronto Blue Jays back in 93 when they won back-to-back over the Philadelphia Phillies in that season. So now here we are just hours away from tip-off where the Golden State Warriors are on the ropes. The Golden State Warriors are dazed. The Golden State Warriors right now are in a 10 count. It's just a matter if the Raptors can land that one final punch to put them away and to crown themselves for the first time an NBA champion. It's been fascinating to see this magic carpet ride. We've chronicled it for the last few weeks going back to the Philly series and we know what happened then and being down 0-2 to the Milwaukee Bucks and here they are right now on the precipice of being able to raise that Lawrence O'Brien trophy over their heads with Kawhi Leonard front and center as the leader of this team. And it's easy to want to talk about how they're going to be champions tonight considering how well they played in Gold, or at Golden State in Oracle Arena where we've probably seen the last of the Strength in numbers, the last of that crowd, the last of that atmosphere as they move to their new building next year right across the river in San Francisco. But if you're a Warrior fan, and we'll get to them in a second. Let me just stick with the Raptors for this very moment. The Raptors right now are tasting it. They could feel it. They could sense it. They can certainly feel it in their grasp that they know with the not just the crowd, not just Toronto, but all of Canada behind them, knowing that this team does not have to fly back out to the West Coast. They know that they can wrap this up, put the ribbon on top of it, and roar from Jurassic Park all the way across Canada. That if they were to somehow, some way, just pull one more feat, whether it's from Kawhi Leonard, 
whether it's from Serge Ibaka, who had 20 points in a game four and certainly looked like he was the Serge Ibaka of his Oklahoma City Thunder days, whether it's Kyle Lowry in a game three when he had 23 points, whether it's Pascal Siakam, who had a very good game three to go along with his game one, and eh, his two and fours weren't uh, spectacular, but still was able to fill the role. If they could go ahead and do that for one more game tonight, they will be NBA champions. But with that being said, now to go to the Warriors side. And if you hear what's going on in the background, there's just a bunch of alarms going off, so hopefully you could disregard that. So it's nothing to do with your feed. It's nothing to do with the phone or device, wherever you may be on. So just try to disregard that and hear what it is that I have to say. So now if you're Golden State, knowing that the pedigree of this team of what's gone on over the last five years, especially the last two years, winning back-to-back, going for a third straight. Backs against the wall. Chips are down. Two subpar performances at home, even without Klay Thompson in the game three. He did come back nicely in the game four, 28 points, six for 10 from three, but it certainly was not enough. Draymond Green, who has had a subpar series after coming off an excellent series against the Portland Trail Blazers and the back two games against the Houston Rockets in the conference semifinals. They've been in this position before. Even with Kevin Durant out and haven't been playing for over a month, or almost a month, knowing that he is questionable for a game five tonight, will his presence in the lineup, whether it be for five minutes, ten minutes, or if it were to play 25 minutes, will that be enough to push this series back to Oracle so their fans could support them one last time in that building? When the Golden State Warriors have been at the precipice, whether it was last year against the Houston Rockets, down three games to two in a conference final, whether it was three years prior to that, down three games to one in a Western Conference final against the Oklahoma City Thunder. Now, people will laugh and say, well, hey, that was three years ago. Kevin Durant wasn't on that team. That's right. But the core of this team, Klay Thompson, Steph Curry, Andre Iguodala, Draymond Green, they were part of that. So they know what it's like. So before you start chiseling in the Toronto Raptors 2018-19 NBA champions into that trophy, remember the pedigree that this team is coming from. Is it going to be enough for them to win a game five to push this back to Oakland for a game number six? I don't think so. As much as I want to go against the grain, as much as I want to say, "Uh uh-uh, we got to look at the heart of the champion." when Coach Rudy Tomjanovich said many years ago. And I believe they're going to put up a great fight. But that crowd, the atmosphere, you've seen it. You've watched the games. They are going to be chomping at the bit. And the best thing about it is that the leader of that Raptor team is going to be as cool, calm, and collected as he's been throughout this whole postseason. And I'm sure he's going to rally those troops to say, not only we got this, but there's no need to panic. There's no need to worry, wonder, whatever. Play our game. Even if Curry goes off, even if Klay Thompson goes off, it doesn't matter because we'll be able to neutralize everything else and bring home that brass ring that this city and even this country has long been searching for. And it's a shame that you didn't get Kevin Durant at full strength or even DeMarcus Cousins, for that matter, at full strength. And I know people may laugh at that. Ha-ha, DeMarcus Cousins. Well, people last July were bitching and moaning how, oh, geez, the Warriors got DeMarcus Cousins. 
even coming off of that Achilles injuries that he suffered the year before. But when the prognosticators, as much as they ballyhooed it and at the same time they crucified it, now they would laugh at the fact that if DeMarcus Cousins were to have a big game in him, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, right. But let's see what's going to happen tonight. I think that I could see this being a type of game where it's going to be close because in the first half, these games have been close. And it's not until the third quarter where it's put away. Now, do I expect to see a third quarter that we saw last Sunday night when the Warriors went on an 18-0 run and pretty much took the game over and put the game away? Not a chance, but we could see both of these teams tooth and nail back and forth and then somebody's going to have that run where it's going to put it away. And chances are, with the game being in Toronto, you would think that the Raptors are going to be the ones that have that big run and put the Warriors out of their misery. I would hope to see Kevin Durant tonight. I would like to see if you get a little Willis-Reed effect. Now, I understand it's not a game seven and it's not in their building, but just in the sake of uplifting their spirits, getting that psychological boost, if you will. Who knows? Maybe if Durant comes in, starts the game, and only gives him six minutes, but scores eight points or so, maybe that could be enough. It's going to be tough being in that bee's nest because that crowd is going to be thirsting absolutely engulfed in championship aspirations. And that's going to be hard to stop. And with the way the Raptors have played in this postseason, they've been downhill ever since game three of the Eastern Conference Final. And why would that change tonight? Even if Durant's calf was 1,000%, you mean to tell me that all of a sudden they're just going to freeze in their tracks and then that's it, just lay over and give it to the Golden State Warriors so they could go back for a game six? I hope they push it to a game six. Can't get to a game seven before you get to a game six. I hope it goes seven. I hope we get a game Sunday night and let whomever wins, wins. I want to see Toronto win. It'd be nice to see them win. Everybody's sick of Golden State and understandably so. And I got nothing against Golden State. But I would like to see a long series. I don't want the NBA season to end tonight. But it just looks like that's going to be the case because the way the Warriors have been playing... And knowing that they've been the better team, despite the fact of the injuries that have beset Golden State. Let's face it, they have just been the team that's been more deserving and more worthy of being an NBA champion this year. So we'll see. Hopefully we'll be sitting here next Monday talking about a Game 7 and how thrilling it was. And that Toronto was able to win an NBA championship. And one thing before I move over to a little free agency talk. If Kawhi Leonard seals the deal tonight or Thursday or Sunday, it will definitely go down as one of the top two or three trades in the history of the NBA. And that's if he does or doesn't come back next year. Now, let's say if he leaves. Let's say if he goes on to warmer and greener pastures, whether it be out in L.A. or who knows, dare I say, New York. But chances are, because he's a West Coast guy, if he were to re-up with either the Lakers or the Clippers... And this was his one and done being in Toronto. Well, they better start erecting the statue because this will be monumental to say the least because how many players have come in pretty much on a one-year deal and not to say that he was a hired gun. You know, this wasn't a situation he was coming to a la, let's say, Kevin Garnett being that final piece to the puzzle for the Celtics back in 2008 or even LeBron James 
joining Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade being the pieces to those puzzle to that puzzle of the Miami Heat. I mean, this is a lot different. This is a situation where you had a disgruntled player in San Antonio and you had a good player in Toronto and DeMar DeRozan with all of their great regular season success, they certainly had a lot of epic playoff failures. Especially last year when they were a number one seed in the East and they lost to LeBron James for it seems like the 50 millionth time. So this trade goes down, somewhat controversial. And for all intents and purposes, if it ends tonight, for argument's sake, and Kawhi Leonard comes July 1st, signs on with another team, I get that there will be some Raptor fans that will certainly be upset. But guess what? That statue could be put out there July 2nd. And that entire town, and who knows, probably the entire country, will go take pictures in front of that from now until kingdom come. And it's quite easy. All you got to do is just take that picture of him shooting the ball over Joel Embiid, Game 7, him outstretched. That's your statue. You have that, and it'll forever be etched. And not only just the Toronto Raptors and their organization, their fans, but just NBA history. Because that shot will live forever. And it'll live forever even more if they could bring him home, if Kawhi could bring him home with a championship. So that trade will go up in the annals of Joe Barry Carroll for Robert Parrish and the draft rights for Kevin McHale. That will also go up in the annals for the Sixers obtaining Moses Malone. And you can put Kawhi Leonard, rank him. But this one will be almost unprecedented because how many times have you seen a player get traded to an organization, win the championship his first year, and then leave right after winning. And in finals closing, the one thing that you could look at here, if you're Golden State, chances are this could be it for Kevin Durant. As all the reports, and for all intents and purposes, he'll be coming east, whether that means he'll be playing for the Knicks or the Brooklyn Nets, which I'll get to in a second. But you would think that this team, despite all the miles, the last five years, the re-upping of Klay Thompson who will be a free agent at the end of this final and Draymond Green the core will still be intact so even if they were to lose tonight or lose at any point throughout the rest of the series they're still going to be back and intact will they be the same team obviously not but the one thing is for sure is that this team is not going to go away does it guarantee them being in the finals next year absolutely not but it's not as if this run is over. Now, if they somehow, some way pulled it out of the fire and won this series, oh, geez. I mean, what could you say? Then they'd be one of the greats of all time. And in fact, come to think of it, if they somehow, some way won this series down 3 1, I understand 73 and 9, that is a tough pill to swallow if you're a Warrior fan. But guess what? If they were to win this series somehow, some way by hook or by crook, that right away will erase that memory. And I understand it's tough to overtake 73-9 and nine as being the best regular season team in NBA history, obviously eclipsing the 72-10 and 10 Bulls of 96, but of course we know they won that year. And that's one thing that the Warriors will have to live for the rest of their lives. But if they somehow pull this one out, oof, that'll make up for that one and then some. And then a lot of people are going to think this could be the greatest team of all time. Despite the fact they were 57-25 and, and that... 
you know, they were steamrolling to an NBA title until Durant got hurt. And although they played an inferior Portland team, and I don't want to say that they were inferior from the standpoint of they weren't any good, but they're just backcourt heavy. They lost their biggest tough, you know, their biggest main frontcourt player with a broken leg. And they were pretty much no match, as you saw. But could you imagine if they just somehow, someway won this series? Then they would just rewrite the record books. But be that as it may, first things first, tonight we'll see how it all shakes down. But hopefully next Sunday we'll be on the air, or I should say after next Sunday, when they finish playing a Game 7, we'll talk about it on Monday. But that, of course, remains to be seen. Now, as far as the Brooklyn Nets are concerned, they made a trade last week, which seemed innocuous. Alan Crabb, who they had gotten in a trade, or in a sign-in trade, I should say, with the Portland Trailblazers, and he had $18 million coming up on the books this year. Well, what they did was they traded him to Atlanta for the 17th pick, which is, the, of course, the Brooklyn Nets' first-round pick this year, and a first-round pick for next year, lottery-protected, Obviously, Billy King didn't get that memo back in 2013. For a second-round pick this year. So now the Nets have opened up another slot to sign a max deal top free agent out there. And with all the reports that have been over the last few days about Kyrie Irving wanting to sign with Brooklyn, you kind of wonder if it makes it that much more enticing for Kevin Durant to take his talents not even into Manhattan, but through Manhattan over the Brooklyn Bridge and into Flatbush. Because I got news for you. Kyrie, we all understand from one day to the next, we, we don't know what he's going to be. You know, Today he'll think the earth is flat, and tomorrow, oh yeah, it's round. Tomorrow he may say Coke is better, and then the day after that, oh no, Pepsi's the best. So take that with a grain of salt. But now with the Nets opening up two slots for max free agents to come into town makes you think what is happening across the river in Manhattan where Scott Perry, Steve Mills, and of course the owner James Dolan, they have to be shaking in their boots a little bit knowing that that team who made it to the playoffs this year did win a game for what it's worth but obviously have some young talent and that they can make a push in an Eastern Conference where who knows where Kawhi's going to end up The Celtics, who knows if they're going to blow it up. They actually have a legitimate chance to improve their team so much to the point where they could actually be a top four seed in the East next year. Especially if they procure the likes of a one Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So if the Knicks right now, who remember, they did the same thing on their end when they traded Kristaps Porzingis back in January or February, whenever it was. And now that they feel like they're going to be the top dog in this town. Well, guess what? This trade by what Brooklyn did the other day, this trade also puts them in the mix with the Knicks and the Clippers and whatever other team that has a couple of slots there for some max free agents to come in there, revamp their team, and try to make a push for a deep playoff run or possibly an NBA title next year. So, Knicks fans, I don't know. I got to call out a couple of them and see how they feel. Now, I'm sure they're going to laugh as, ah, it's the Nets, who cares? But well, listen. Nets are trying to stake their claim. Now, it'd be a shame because then D'Angelo Russell, who improved dramatically from the time he was traded here, he'll be out the door because if you bring in Kyrie and there's no way you're going to have a backcourt of Kyrie and D'Angelo Russell. 
Personally, I would like for them to go the route of keeping Russell. If you want to try to get Kawhi or you want to try to get Kevin Durant, fine. But you know Durant's going to want Kyrie. Or at least you think. So, there's plenty of time to talk about that. I know we got to get through the rest of the finals and, of course, the draft to the end of the month. But you know the rumor mill is going to be rampant between now and July 1. But the Nets are certainly not only dipped their toe into the pool, but they're certainly ready to dive into the deep end of the free agency pool by making this trade and certainly put the league on notice as well as guys like myself who do podcasts like this on notice to see what their next step will be. As far as the Stanley Cup Finals are concerned, the Bruins, who can't count them out, and remember, they still have some guys on that team that played on that 2011 Stanley Cup champion team, which, in fact, was the last time the Stanley Cup Final had seen a Game 7 when the Bruins beat the Vancouver Canucks out in Vancouver to win their first title, going back to the day of Bobby Orr flying through the air, beating the aforementioned St. Louis Blues. And if you're a Blues fan, I know you're kicking yourself big time because not only did you get a chance to even the series last week, thanks to Ryan O'Reilly, who's had a tremendous series, getting that first goal in Game 4, and then he got the game winner before they got an empty netter there late. Game 5 in Boston, where they got the call of a lifetime, let's face it, up one nothing, when you had the situation there where Tyler Bozak trips uh, Noel Akiari. Falls to the ice. He even gives up on the play. Kind of resigned to the fact that, oh, I'm going to get called for a penalty. Bruins kind of led up there, but the puck was in their zone. David Perron scores a goal, and then the crowd just goes absolutely nuts. Even Cam Neely, the Bruin great, is throwing a water bottle across the press box. The Bruins did get a delayed penalty where they scored a goal with Jake DeBrusque and had an absolutely unbelievable opportunity there late in the game when John Moore had that shot from the point. And Jordan Bennington made the save but didn't know where the puck was. It was behind them. And then coming to save the day was the defenseman Carl Gunnison. So they win a game five there. And then right in your hands, in your building, last night, actually had a power play two and a half minutes into the game where you certainly could have dictated the momentum if they would have got on the board. And who knows, they probably would have been skating downhill the rest of the way and the Bruins would have been pinching and chasing from then on out. They didn't score. Then, with the Bruins getting a power play of their own, Brad Marchand out that one-timer from the pass from David Pasternak, beautiful shot. And it's interesting because early in the series, Craig Berube, the coach of the Blues, got in the refs' heads a little bit by making those remarks after Game 3 that power play extravaganza where the Bruins had four power plays, four power play goals, and four shots. And Berube came out and said, listen, When are we going to get the whistle? They had, I believe, 14 power play opportunities in the first three games. And since then, they've only had six. Now, they scored on the power play last night to get themselves on the board of 1-0. But certainly, the power plays had diminished. The Blues won two of those games. And you were thinking Barubi did his job by putting the referees on notice. So now, here you are last night. 1-0 lead. Third period, you had that goal there from the point, from the stick of Brandon Carlo. I was going to say Coyle. It's got Charlie Coyle and Brandon Carlo mixed up. So Brandon Carlo gets that goal. It bounces a few times. That's a tough 
chance for Jordan Bennington. Now, Bennington was, he stood on his head in game five. Give him credit because I pounded him last week. But game five, he was enormous. Game four, he was good, but he didn't face a lot of shots in that third period. Bennington was excellent game five. And last night, can't do anything about that first goal. The second goal, that's a tough one. Now, that's a goal he should have stopped or a shot he should have stopped, but the goal went through his blocker hand, blocker side. And then Carson Coleman had that third goal, just a beautiful shot, give it up to him. And even though Ryan O'Reilly got that big goal to get it to 3-1, to one, but still, the Bruins are pretty much in control. And now here we are to Game 7. will be played Wednesday night. And it's ironic, too. It's brought up on the by the great Mike Emmerich. And I'll say this real quick about Emmerich. And this is just for play-by-play guys that are living. All right, we're not talking about and Vince Scully, God bless his soul, he's still alive. But you know, we're not talking about Howard Cosell. We're not talking about Red Barber. We're not talking about Mel Allen. We're not talking about you know guys of that ilk or guys that have long left us. But if I had to watch one last sporting event, one last game for the play-by-play, it'd be Mike Emmerich. And I love Mike Breen. Breeny is great. Joe Buck, I like him in baseball more than football. Al Michaels, I mean, listen, Al Michaels is all-time great too. But Emmerich, if you've never watched a hockey game or if you're a casual hockey fan, watch Game 7 and you'll see what I mean. Because Emmerich, his passion, his fervor, everything comes out. The way he describes the play, it, no one, there's no one like him. He is really second to none amongst play-by-play guys in any sport. But he brought out a stat yesterday that obviously Wednesday night is going to be June 12th. And he said the last time a Game 7 was played in Boston on that date was 1984 Lakers-Celtics, which I thought was fascinating. And it was on a Wednesday. So now you have a Game 7. And to me, what it's going to boil down to, I mean, you could talk about matchups, right. But to me, it's going to be the goalies. Now, Tuka Rask played incredible. He had that unbelievable save yesterday, down one nothing, where Alex Angelo hit the, on a backhand, hit the post, it hit Tuka Rask in the back, He's trying to turn and catch it in his glove, but it's falling down his back, and then Charlie McAvoy was Johnny on the spot to swipe the puck away. But that's what it's going to boil down to. If Bennington could play the way he did in Game 5, Blues have an excellent chance to win. And a standing and say, Jay Reels, well, that's not rocket science. Well, the, the guy's been hit or miss throughout this whole series. Did you watch this guy in the first three games? He was pulled after Game 3. He was giving up soft goals left and right. Now, he's been better since. And actually, last night, you know, he was fine up until the third period. You know, the second goal, like I said, questionable. Tough goal to stop. You know, tough shot to stop. But to me, that's what it's going to boil down to. You understand Vladimir Tarasenko has to play better. Braden Shen has to play better on the St. Louis side. It seems like anybody's, you know, Johnny on the spot for the Bruins. They've been, doesn't matter who it is, you know, they carry the mail where it's David Krejci, whether it's Patrice Bergeron, whether it's Jake DeBrusque, whether it doesn't matter. Those guys, you know, they have 21 different goal scorers here throughout this postseason, which is the most since the 87 Flyers. I think it's going to be fascinating. I said the Bruins are going to win. I want the Bruins to win. I understand Boston doesn't need another title. I get that. But of course, my cousin JD, who's a longtime Bruin fan, Obviously, I'm hoping and wishing for him. But I will say this. If the Blues do win, I'll be happy for the coach. Because as we all know, fighting in the sport has been a thing of the past. It's certainly 
the game has lost a lot of its luster, and I've been on here pounding it for weeks on end, but I'm just going to talk about Barubi. I won't talk about fighting. Barubi, who will probably be the one coach, if he does win, have the most penalty minutes in the history leading a team to a Stanley Cup victory, which I, that will be cool. I understand people will laugh. Ah, oh, who cares? Well, hey, the, the guy was... I love Barubi. I love him. How could you not? Especially if you love the tough guys, if you love the fisticuffs of days gone by of yesteryear. But be that as it may, we'll have a Game 7. It's going to be interesting. Game 7 is always great in any sport. Uh, let's just see how far this game will go. Because remember, if it goes into overtime, oof, that's when it gets really epic. So we have a Game 7 there in the NHL Wednesday night. I'm sure everybody will tune in to check that out. And if you haven't tuned in or if you're a casual hockey fan, definitely listen just for Mike Emmerich and you'll see what I mean. All right, we'll move our attention now to some baseball. The Yankees, who last week at this time had won nine consecutive series, riding high, looking like world beaters with pretty much seems like three-quarters of their team on the shelf. Well, sadly, another key component of their team is back on the shelf. Now, I should say back on the shelf because now he's on the shelf for the first time, and that's Domingo Herman, who is now on the aisle with a hip flexor deal. And the only thing I could think of I know his past few starts have not been the way they were for the first couple of months of the season, but the only thing I could think of is that this could be an injury where, considering it's the hips, considering it's the legs, and as we all know with pitching, you know you're so as much as you are arm do- dominant, but you know your stride, your delivery, obviously it's going to be based on your legs. Who knows how long he's going to be on the shelf for? So that's going to be a major concern for the Yankees moving forward, considering they have no Luis Severino. Also, James Paxton, who's been he's pitched fairly well since he's been back in the rotation, but he'd been on the IL with a injury stint already earlier this year. The Yankee bullpen is starting to get a little bit overworked. And I mentioned this last week, just as a beware, a warning to the Yankee fans. And we know they have a dominant bullpen. And one that's not going to have a Dylan Pertances coming back into the mix as he's had a setback with his prognosis as far as his injury is concerned. So add that to the mix. And what you have here is a situation where the Yankees are going to need some sort of reinforcement sooner than later. Now, as we know, the trade deadline's not until the end of next month. So you still got another six and a half weeks to go before you even get to hire a big gun at that point. Whether it be a Madison Bumgarner or another one of those top flight pitchers that are out there on bad teams. But if you're the Yankees right now, and especially Aaron Boone, you certainly have to start treating this bullpen with kid gloves because come the dog days of August, this bullpen's going to get burnt out. And that was the thing that I looked at from afar and feared that if you're a Yankee fan, you got to watch out. We understand pitchers aren't going to go seven, eight innings anymore. We understand that. We understand that this is all part of the big picture where you're going to need to have a strong and healthy bullpen going into October. Well, at this rate, forget about it. They're going to be on fumes. And we get it. Most teams are going to be like that. Most teams that don't have the dominant bullpens where the Yankees are four and five deep when it comes to their bullpen. But still, these guys are human. You can't expect the Zach Brittons, the Adam Adovinos, the Tommy Canleys, the... I was going to say Dylan Patanzi has been pitched this year. The Aroldis Chapmans to just be lights out every time they step on the mound. So with this situation here, you got to wonder whether or not the Yankees are going to trade for a three-starter or are they going to go 
for the big dog and try to call someone in San Francisco to say, hey, what can we get for a one Madison Bumgarner? And as you saw yesterday, Bumgarner still has that fight in him when Mac Muncy took him deep. And I understand the umpire squeezed him on a couple of pitches there, but that's a guy you want to have in pinstripes. And we know his track record in the postseason, especially in the World Series. And the Yankees come into this series losing two straight series after the nine straight series that I mentioned. They lose two out of three in Toronto. That second game was a tough one because the game was tied late. Vladimir Guerrero takes him deep. That was the big hit of that inning. And they attack on another home run by Randall Grichuk, who had a big series against them. They were able to save or salvage the final game where they had a 6 nothing lead, then it was 6-2, and they got a little nervous there about them coming back, but they were able to hang on and win. Over the weekend, CC didn't cut it there in the game Saturday, Friday night, with Didi Gregorius coming back into the mix for the first time since last year, well ahead of schedule. What does he do? He goes two for four. Then on Saturday, his second game, hits a home run in his first at bat, goes two for four again. But yesterday, Zara, being up 5 nothing in the game and then up 6-5 in the ninth, that key error that tied the game, but then the Yankees were able to prevail there in the 10th. And then Steven Tarpley had to come in and strike out the side to get the save. And the Yankees come limping home, tied for first place in the AL East as the Rays win three out of four in Boston. And that's a big hit for the Red Sox. Because again, they know they're trying to chase the Yankees, but they also got to chase the Rays too. So when you lose three out of four at home to the team that's directly ahead of you, that's a tough blow. So now the Yankees go into this two-game set with the Mets. Who knows they're going to play tonight with the weather being as it is. They do have an off day on Wednesday, which they may play before the Yankees go to Chicago. The Mets will stay home and play the Cardinals for four over the weekend. So who knows? They may be able to make it up then unless there's another date where both teams will be around later on in the year. But I would think they want to try to make this up ASAP. You know, why mess around and say, oh, well, the game, you know, they're going to replay it August 9th or something. I don't know, whatever date's available for both teams. I just do a date out just to take a guess. But as far as the Mets are concerned, now they're the opposite. It seems like they can never win series. I've talked about it time and time again, how the Mets, as nondescript as they are, what is this team? They need to, they'll never put together a winning streak. They need to start winning series. Well, they're doing just that, although they've lost the first game of each of the last two series only to win the back two. So that's a good thing. You know, they lose that game against Bumgarner, where Syndergaard pitched uh, last Tuesday night. Mickey Calloway, where you got to wonder why he's pulling out Syndergaard, six and two thirds innings, where that bullpen, as we all know, it is as brutal as it gets. And of course, Gazelman blows the game later on and they lose. And then who would have thought Wednesday night they bounce back behind a complete game shutout from Jason Vargas? Now, I know the giant offense is from Hunger. I get that. But they're still major league hitters. But of all people, of all people, Jason Vargas. And I'll say this. And I said this last week. Go back in the archives. I said the best thing that Mickey Calloway could do is revamp this rotation. And I mentioned this before Vargas pitched this shutout, by the way. Have Vargas skip the Yankees, pitch Wheeler on regular rest, and then you'd also have DeGrom on regular rest if they would have pitched it that way. Now, this is going back to last week because remember, they did the day off on Monday. So now, if there's going to be a rainout tonight, 
Guess what? Cut Vargas to pitch tomorrow, have Wheeler pitch his normal turn, and then DeGrom, who pitched on Friday in a loss to Colorado, he'll pitch on regular rest Wednesday. Why not do that? Because I could put this in the bank. Jason Vargas, the over-under is three innings, and I'll take the under. He's going to get shellacked. Considering the Yankees have come off this bad road trip, they haven't hit in big spots, and Jason Vargas is, I tell you, tailor-made to get lit up like a Christmas tree. And no offense to Jason Vargas. I'm not knocking him personally. And I get it that his ERA is 3.74. It's actually better than Noah Syndergaard's. And that was after he threw a one-hit, seven-inning performance against the Rockies yesterday. But, uh, listen, can you trust Jason Vargas? No. But I can guarantee it. If he's pitching tomorrow night, forget it. And I'm planning to go to that game tomorrow too. So, oh, geez, if they don't play tonight and I got to see Vargas pitch that game, oh, my goodness. That's going to be a long night. Guarantee it. And then a couple other things from last week. You know, Todd Frazier has been on fire. He was batting 146, it seemed like, five days ago. Now he's at 265. So he's been hitting. He had a home run there yesterday. Had the big hit there on Thursday, the home run to win the game, which was a joke. I mean, the ball's just flying out of the ballpark. Gary Cohen is saying how ridiculous it is, and he's absolutely right. Something in the ball that is just, they're just, they're flying like golf balls. Then I talked about Friday night, DeGrom. I mean, tough luck. He gave up two runs, six hits. He strikes out 10, but again, the bullpen couldn't hold together. Yeah, Drew Gagno giving up home runs left and right, and then he plunks Ian Desmond where Daniel Murphy's flying out of the dugout. Now, finally, the Mets tame Murphy the rest of the weekend. But the thing is, Murphy's running out of the dugout, and I'm saying to myself, they need to brush him back. He's only murdered the Mets ever since he left. And finally, he cooled off against them. I don't think it was the first time. I think he went 0 for 4 both days, Saturday and Sunday. I think it was the first time he went 0 for 8 against the Mets because they had some ridiculous hitting streak against the Mets ever since he was signed with the Nationals. So the Mets right now are game under. Of course, we know they have the Yankees here coming up in the stadium before they play the Cardinals at home. And all you could say right now, just again, it's a two-game series. You just want to split here. Get a split. You'll be happy with that. Go into the St. Louis series. Try to win three out of four. If you split those four games, fine. Because guess what, Mets fans? After this, it's going to get super, ultra, mega, difficult. They go on a 10-game, excuse me, an 11-game road trip after St. Louis where they go three in Atlanta, four in Chicago, and four in Philly. And guess what? All right, so then they come home. Who are they going to face? Atlanta, and then the two games against the Yankees, and before the break, three against Philly. Yeah. So if the Mets want to see 500 again, they better do it this week. And not that the Cardinals are chopped liver either. You know, the Cardinals are trying to survive there in uh, Central where it looks like it's going to be jam-packed, and they got swept by the Cubs over the weekend. So, Met fans, I, I can't even say enjoy it right now because what are you enjoying? You're a game under 500? Wow, you won two series in a row? Woo, man, let's throw a parade right after Toronto wins their NBA championship tonight. I tell you, it is going to be, this is going to be the stretch that kills them. And it starts tonight. Because, and the Rockies have had a good year. They're a couple games over. I get that. But now the dregs are gone. In fact, the next time you're going to see a bad team on the horizon, 
is when they go to Miami after the All-Star break. And then they go to two games in Minnesota, which is looking like the best team in the league right now. So this team needs to get it together quick, fast, in a hurry. They need to get long starts from their rotation and give Steven Matz credit. He pissed a, you know, 10 strikeouts, six innings the other night in a victory. Noah yesterday. Hopefully that's a Noah we see from here on out. As he's been, for him, he's had a bad year. Not so-so, not okay, not mediocre. He's had a bad year. So hopefully he's right the ship. And the Grom, he's just pitching the bad luck. He's 3-6. and six. You know, because you can't rely on that bullpen. I understand Diaz maybe, and to a certain extent Lugo, but everybody else, you can forget it. You might as well just throw him in the trash. So that's your guy with the Mets. And as far as the rest of baseball is concerned, I know I talked about the Rays and what they did to the Red Sox this weekend. Yanks are uh, eight ahead of them in the loss, if you're wondering at home. It's interesting because when you look at these divisions, you got three divisions that are close, and the other three you could just might as well forget about. Oh, yeah, I take that back. Hold on. No, you have the NL West. The Dodgers are up 11 games. You have the Twins that are up 10.5. Oh, yes, and of course the AL West where the Astros up 9.5. Then the other three are close. Obviously, Yanks' Rays are tied. Phillies and Braves are separated by a game, and then the Cubs and Brewers are actually deadlocked. Although the Cubs are percentage points ahead of the Brewers in the NL Central. So as of right now, you're looking at three teams for a division where the other three could pretty much put their feet up. And then you're going to battle out all summer for those other three and then who the wild cards will be. And it's too early to get into the wild cards. I'll talk about that after the All-Star break. You know, once we get past the NBA free agency, some NHL free agency, whoever's free agents out, you know, whoever's going to be left. And then we'll get into the teeth of the MLB season. And then away we go. And uh, one other thing, and this is, I mean, what could you say about this? The news last night in Dominican Republic with David Ortiz. I mean, when that sucker came through, he said he shot, injured. And then you find out the reports, how he got shot, where somebody just ambushed him, shot him in the back, and went through his stomach. They had to remove some intestines, part of his liver, uh, just a sordid story. And as we know, David Ortiz is a beloved figure, not only in baseball, obviously in Boston, that's for sure. But uh, it's just a shame that somebody, or anybody for that matter, would just want to do something as senseless and as just, downright stupid is what this guy did. And of course, I'm sure it has to do with some jealousy or who knows what. Now, the guy, after that happened, he was ambushed by a bunch of people as he was literally beaten to a pulp. So he's still alive and still has to answer to the police down there. So we'll see how that unfolds. But you would think he's going to be locked up for good considering he's trying to take one of the country's patron, you know, patron, patron saints, if I can get that out in as smooth as possible. And just glad to hear that he's in stable condition. The surgery was a success. Again, you know, to have a guy like that, David Ortiz, who is Yankee fans, I, I know they're sick of seeing number 34, especially when he was on the playing field. But uh, as far as a human story, I mean, that just would have been really tough to swallow if it was fatal. I mean, it's all there is to it. But seems like he's resting comfortably down there. I'm sure at some point he'll put out a statement or release some sort of 
interview and uh, away we go. So uh, that's just a, a story that you can't even make up and you certainly shake your head at a thousand times over it. So, And hopefully he's doing well and the whole family is beside him and doing as well as they possibly can. All right, a couple other things before we wrap up. One is the NFL and the Jets have hired their GM. And to no surprise, it's Joe Douglas, who was at the time back in 2015 with the Bears. I believe he was the head of college scouting where Adam Gaze was the, I believe, I want to say he was the offensive coordinator. Uh, or definitely a you know, top offensive dog there for Chicago Bears before he went to Miami to become head coach. And to me now, this is all on Christopher Johnson because as much as Adam Gaze had his fingerprints on this GM search and handpicking this guy, now let's see the gumption or the gall if the Jets have a 6-10 and 10 type year. Will he go ahead and keep both coach and GM or will he just fire the coach? Will he fire them both? That obviously remains to be seen, but this is where we're going to really if any, see the chops of a one Christopher Johnson. Because not to rehash this whole story with the former GM Mike McCagnin and how that went down with Gase, et cetera, et cetera, but you got to wonder if the Jets have a subpar season this year and let's just say they follow that up with another subpar season, what's going to happen? Is Christopher Johnson going to be that blind to say that no, I got to keep one of these two guys or I got to fire the coach, but I'll keep the GM or uh, what's going to happen here. Now, these guys are tied at the hip in a more unique way. You know, it wasn't as if the GM was brought in and he picked the manager, but he picked the manager out of a bunch of candidates. Now, we don't know who the other candidates were or how many were interviewed. You would think that had to be more than Joe Douglas, of course. And there were guys that were tied to Adam Gase from other walks of football life that were going to be rumored to get the job. But it's not as if Adam Gase hired somebody off of the Steelers staff or somebody off of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers staff or, dare I say, the New England Patriots staff. What this boiled down to was pretty much a case of, hey, that's my guy. I want this guy to be the GM because of what he did not only just in Chicago but being the VP player personnel down in Philly, and they won a Super Bowl. So guess what? I want him here. And what is Christopher Johnson going to say? who probably doesn't know a first down from a forward pass, sure, sign him up. And there you go. So to me, this is going to fall on Christopher Johnson because at the end of the day, if the Jets do not produce and do not go to the playoffs, especially this year, and dare I say even next year, if they make any improvements with this team, then they both have to go. In fact, if you're the owner, if they don't make the playoffs this year, you could certainly... Look at both of those guys and fire them. But if they go 6-10 and 10 and he's not going to say a peep or do anything about it, then, man, I know Jet fans, they want these owners long gone. But, boy, it's going to speak a lot of Christopher Johnson this time around if the Jets have anything but a successful year this first year for Adam Gaze and obviously the new GM, Joe Douglas. All right, I'll cap this off with Rafael Nadal, who won his 12th. And also, I got to give credit to uh, Ashley Barty, the Australian woman, for winning the French Open. And what we're looking at here is the utter dominance and brilliance, which is no surprise, of Rafael Nadal on that clay surface where he won his 12th French Open tournament. 
as he beat Dominic Team or Dominic Time, excuse me, in four sets. And the one thing about just the difference between the men's and the women's, and even just tennis on a whole, especially here in this country. Now, for it seemed like forever, at least the last dozen years, the male sport has been dominated by four guys. And now time looks like he would be the next guy that's moving up that ranking. We all know it's been either Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, or even Andy Murray. Now, you've seen some flashes here. Juan Martin Del Potro, he's a guy that's actually won some tournaments here. Uh, another, yeah, I probably have a couple of others that I haven't mentioned, but Del Potro was one that came to mind. But for all intents and purposes, it's been those top four guys. Now, if time could somehow, some way, move up to the ranks and try to be in the same class as these guys, then that's saying a lot. But here's the thing. You have no Americans that are dominating this circuit and haven't dominated since the days of Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras, and that's when, the 90s? And then on the women's side, it's just as bad because even though you have Serena, but we know Serena can't do it forever. Same for Venus. Sloane Stevens, she's had her moments, but she hasn't been fixated as far as being one of those top two, three, or four ranked women in the world. A lot of them are overseas, and God bless them. I'm not trying to knock them. Hey, listen, let them win it all. But the sad part is, is that here in the States, same thing even with the golf for a certain extent. You know, when Tiger was dominating, everybody either loved him or hated him, but they wanted to see what he was going to do and took the sports to new heights. Now, again, that's a whole different beast. But my point is, is that when you're looking at the American golfers now, Phil's getting long in the tooth. You know, I understand you can look at the Dustin Johnsons of the world and, you know, guys like that, and that's fine. But time and time again, when you're seeing a lot of the, you know, the Rory McIlroy's, you're seeing the Adam Scott's of the world, you're seeing the Lee Westwoods of the world, people that are outside, perform outside this country or from other countries, a lot of the Americans can't really relate. Now, golf was a lot more popular than tennis. But in order to get that tennis fan back, or at least a tennis fan engaged or even interested, you need to have some good American blood to be a part of the sport. Because if you don't, it's going to continue to suffer. And as we know, the diehard tennis fan, or even a casual tennis fan, will look at the brilliance of Nadal. We'll look at the brilliance of Federer, et cetera. And that's great. And they'll continue to watch. But until we get that guy, and we all thought Andy Roddick was going to be that guy back in 2003, and he won one major tournament, U.S. Open. That was it. So the landscape of and the dearth of solid to excellent American tennis players are few and far between. And listen, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm Mr. Tennis or I got it all down pat. No, I do follow it. I follow the majors just like I follow the golf. But at the same time, if you're wondering where the interest is as far as tennis is concerned, until you have those players that are, if you have American players that are just as prominent as the guys that I mentioned or even, and I understand you can look at, hey, J-Real, Serena Williams. But Serena Williams, she's, let's face it, she's on that proverbial 18-hole golf course. She's at, if she's not at hole 18, she's at 17. How much is going to be left in her tank? And now she has a baby. And not not to say that she's not competitive. I love Serena Williams. But, you know, what is she, 35 years old? 
A lot of these girls, as a matter of fact, the other girl that went up against Barty in the final from Czechoslovakia, she was 19. And if we recall going back to the 70s, and I understand I'm going to sound like the old man on the get off my lawn, but when you're going back to the Tracy Austins when she was 14, the Jennifer Capriati when she was 14, I mean, these girls were Gabriella Sabatini. These girls were playing the teenagers. I mean, they were in their teens. And made their mark along the way. And now Serena's 35. So I think in order for the sport, and I don't know, I can't tell you. Is it Sloan Stevens? From the American side, I couldn't even tell you the American men. Who's a top dog? Or who's a guy that, oh yeah, this guy's going to be up and coming. As it is, Dominic Time, he's German. And not there's anything wrong with being German, but again, if you want to have an American presence, you know, where is that person? So just something to think about. You know, Wimbledon's next month, and I'll certainly be a little bit more in tune because I'm even curious as I'm having this discussion. And I thought about this prior to, but even more so now, that the American presence of top-flight tennis players, if my life depended on it, I couldn't even name five people, both on the men and the women's side. I gave you Sloan Stevens on the men's side. I mean, geez, I couldn't even tell you. So there you have it. It's definitely unlike years of Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe and you know players like that. You know, obviously I mentioned Sampras and Agassi. You know, and you're always going to have the European influx, whether it's even back then Boris Becker, Ivan Lendl, uh, Guillermo Villas. I can go on forever. So Leighton Hewitt. So that's it with the tennis, and uh, that uh, brings us to uh, one last thing about Nadal. Yeah, he just won his 16th major tournament, so he's two behind Federer for number one overall. Uh, will he get there? Who knows? But uh, still, when you win 12 tournaments the way he has throughout the course of his career, I mean, it's just it's nothing short of remarkable. So congratulations again to Rafa Nadal. And with that being said, that's going to conclude this week's pod. As always, people, I implore, I won't beg and plead, but I ask you to please subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed it, if you liked it, if you want to give it another shot, please do. Uh, Again, this is something that I love to do. I've been doing it now. This is 74 episodes, so I've been doing it, what, 15 months now, and I'm going to continue to do it as long as I'm alive, and I hope you were informed, entertained, engaged, the whole nine, whatever it may be. Here is I deliver everything in the world of sports. And you could do that by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, even Luminary. I'm on there as well. So please leave a review, post a rating. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast amongst the plethora, the many sports podcasts out there in cyberspace. And if I could just ask you to take two minutes to go to your phone, your tablet, device, whatever it may be, and just hit subscribe and just type in a few words on your thoughts Hey, you want to give me five stars? I'd greatly appreciate that. But you know what I mean? Because this one-man operation that, again, independently to produce, edit, write, everything, host, uh, any help I could uh, get from the outside will certainly help. And uh, I implore you to do that. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart ahead of time for those who have done that. And if you need to contact me, if you want to send me an email, if you want to send me a direct message, you could do so. The email is at the jreelspodcast at gmail.com. Also, my Instagram account is jreels. Uh, Facebook is the jreels podcast fan page. And on Twitter is jreels1, just a number. If you want to send me any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, as I'll be sure to follow up and answer back. 
And yes, I'm here each and every week. I'll try to sprinkle in some along we go. What I want to do is try to get some more guests on so I could at least put out two a week and uh, check my social media feeds for any news, notes, etc. And of course, the website at www.jreels.com for more info on me, about the show, my journey, etc. As I deliver each and every week what's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the hardwood, gridiron, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. J-Rose podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J-Rose podcast, on the flip, baby.